Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Welcome to another week of the podcast. Pretty exciting week we've got here. As many of you know, the episode that I did with Joe Rogan is going to be out later this week, and we had an awesome conversation. It was so cool to talk to Joe about the remembering, about many of the ideas that he and I share regarding human diet, where we've come from, how we've gone off the path, and maybe how we get back to it a little bit in 2020. But I hope you will all check that out. I think it's going to be a huge episode. I hope a lot of people like it, and I hope it helps a lot of people. One of the things that continues to come up for me is this concept of the remembering, just the idea that we have really forgotten in 2020 who we are as humans, what it takes to be a human, what we need to be doing in our daily life to satisfy many of the desires which are built into who we are after millions of years of human evolution. You all know that eating no tail is a huge part of my um, passion right now. That's why we have Heart and Soil, which is at heartandsoil.co. You can find all of our desiccated organ supplements there. I think it's such a cool thing to be able to help you and your families, people you know, get to have organs in their diet in an easy way. I see it as a stepping stone, an entry point, a, a really easy doorway for most people to go through to get nutrition in their life that they may have never had before. And whether it's your mother or your father, you, your brother, your sister, your children, I strongly believe that when they experience the nutrition found in animal organs and well-raised animal meat, they'll feel it. They'll feel differently, and that can be the spark for overall behavioral change and hopefully the beginning of one individual's remembering, which is something that I am super, super passionate about. So check us out, heartandsoil.co.co. And as always, you can email me, Dr. Paul, drpaul at heartandsoil.co if you have product questions or questions about recommendations and things like that. But on the podcast this week, I have none other than Peter Dobromilski. I asked him in the beginning of the podcast how to pronounce his name, and so I hope I did that correctly. Um, he is the, um, the pretty clearly genius dude behind the Hyperlipid blog. You will find all of the show notes for this episode at heartandsoil.co with all the other podcasts and show notes there. We have timestamps, links to the articles we talk about, etc. But in this show, we talk about essentially the protons, quote unquote, concept of obesity. This hypothesis, which I believe is supported by a large amount of very compelling data, much of which Peter and I begin to discuss in this podcast, that the obesity and ultimately metabolic dysfunction are perhaps driven by excess polyunsaturated fats in our diet. Excess fats like linoleic acid, excess fats like other polyunsaturated fats that we get as well, and maybe even excess monounsaturated fat. We're still trying to figure that out too. But when you look at who we are as humans and where we've come from, there does appear to be an evolutionary set point for polyunsaturated fats. They're just not that prevalent in our environment. And on the flip side, the saturated fats like stearic acid or pentadecanoic acid, a 15-carbon saturated fat, an odd-chain saturated fat, all of which are found in animal fat, those are the prevalent ones in the natural world um, in connection with the other fats that occur in animal fat. Animal fat doesn't have a lot of polyunsaturated fat in it. 
And today, I just, I think it's so interesting to imagine that pushing tons of polyunsaturated fat in our diet could be making us fat, could be causing our adipocytes to grow, to become hypertrophic, and eventually to have trouble dividing, which is called adipogenesis, leading to fat sick adipocytes. So that's fat, fat cells. When your fat cells get fat, you know things are in for trouble. The train is going off the tracks when your fat cells get fat. So strap in, put your nerd hat on, spin the propeller, because this is an intense podcast. And I want to do a couple more with Peter and dig into many more of these concepts. I would pair this podcast with the one I did previously with Brad Marshall and um, the one I did with Ben Bickman, if you need more information. And yeah. Put it, put it together here, guys. It's really cool to think about this stuff. I think it's fascinating, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you to my sponsors this week, Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com, Blue Blocks. I really appreciate these guys. They've done the research to find the best materials to make some really freaking high-quality blue blocking glasses. I use these on the daily. I use clear ones. I use the orange ones. I use the yellow ones, which are called Summer Glow. Blue Blocks sent me their light bulbs. They have red light bulbs and yellow light bulbs, which are low flicker. They have a, e, uh, an EM, a low EMF red light device, which is essentially no flicker, called the Hive. They have a sleep mask. It's pretty cool stuff these guys are making, and I really appreciate what they're doing, and I, I love their products, so I'm happy to support them, and I hope you'll check them out, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. It's part of the remembering. We're in an environment in which light is a little bit different than what we're used to as humans, and these kind of things help us recreate a little bit of what our bodies are expecting, which is ultimately, I believe, how we start to get back to living more fully on a daily basis. So you can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 15% off your first order. White Oak Pastures, love these guys, whiteoakpastures.com. This is my friendly neighborhood family regenerative farm, really leading the way in regenerative agriculture in Bluffton, Georgia. Got to go there recently for photographs for the cookbook. Really enjoyed my time there. Was reminded at how green the grass was, how healthy the animals were, and how much the people there care about making really high quality meat and organs. They have all kinds of good stuff. Give them a call. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order. They also have a loyalty program whereby you can buy into different levels of what they call um, the sort of town system and ensure yourself access to good meat and organs in these unstable times of the food delivery system. So check that out as well. But regardless, I think that by supporting regenerative agriculture, we move the needle in a positive direction and we give ourselves healthy food. This is a huge part of the remembering. So check out whiteoakpastures.com. Another farm I really like is Belcampo. They are in Northern California, and you can use the code CARNIVOREMD there through the end of October for 20% off your order. They are grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised. They have suet, liver. They have a carnivore bundle, a keto bundle. And Anya Fernald, the CEO of Belcampo, has been on the podcast before. You can go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear straight from her mouth straight from the head cowgirl's mouth about how they run the farm there and their values, which I believe are in line with all of ours. So I am just so happy and proud to be able to support farms like this that are doing really, really good work in the world and moving it back to what it was in a positive way. So also check us out, heartandsoil.co and nutrisense.io is, as you know, my standby for Continuous glucose monitors, loving these guys. My dad has been wearing a CGM from NutriSense and loves it.
So without further ado, on to the podcast. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. I am so grateful for that in advance. Every month, so in the month of October, I'm going to be selecting a couple of lucky winners who leave me reviews. I'm going to be sending them a signed copy of my book, The Carnivore Code. It's so important that these reviews drive traffic to the podcast. They help more people find this message that is critical for us. And that is a big deal. So thank you for supporting the podcast by just letting me know what you think. Of course, I would love it if you like the podcast. If you don't like the podcast, leave me some constructive feedback and that would be fantastic. But I will um, repay my gratitude in kind with these uh, autographed books every month in the future. So go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, leave me a review every month. I'll give two lucky winners signed copies of my book. Okay, on to the podcast, Lift in the After Report. What's going on with me? Peter, my friend, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Uh, thanks very much. It's lovely to be here. That's great. Now, we've got a lot of really cool things to cover. Um, this, is gonna, this podcast is going to run the gamut. We're going to get technical. We're going to try and go high level for people. Ultimately, we're trying to just unpack ideas that I've, that I've talked about before on the podcast with Brad Marshall, with Ben Bickman. But first things first, Peter, how do we say your last name? Because, oh, right. my goodness, that's, that's an amazing easy. That's easy. Name. <laughs> okay, Dobro. Dobro. Milsky. Say that's it again. Dobro Milsky. Dobro Milsky. And what's, then, what's, what's the ethnicity? Uh, my father was from Ukraine. Okay. And uh, it's a very long, complicated story. You did not want to live in Ukraine during the last world, world war. I assure you, it was not a good place to be. Right. Wow. Okay, and now you're in the UK, right? I'm in the UK, yeah. And tell us just a, a little bit about your background. I'm gonna, I gave you an intro in the, in the beginning of the podcast, but tell the listeners a little bit about your background and maybe how you got interested in, in this, this funky electron transport chain stuff. Well, I, I mean, obviously I, I came to this originally by meeting a friend who'd done Atkins for, um, I think, 18 months and had lost three stone a month for 18 months. And um, he was still fairly heavy, but he'd lost a hell of a lot of weight. And he told me to read the Atkins book, that it was interesting. I read the Atkins book, it was interesting. And I um, I just discovered PubMed. This will be 2001, something like that. Um, and I went and checked his references and some of them were good and some of them, some of them were uh, rubbish. Um, and uh, but I, I did Atkins induction, and I got fairly corrupted by Kwasniewski and his love of saturated fats and his hatred of polyunsaturated fats. Um, and I took that pretty much on trust. It seemed sensible. It was the opposite advice from the cardiologists. And once you started going through the cardiological papers, uh, you realise that everything about lipid hypothesis basically was propped up on a tissue. It was just garbage. Um, uh, even the people that were involved at the time were arguing against it. So, so uh, I was fairly pro-saturated fats and I seemed to do perfectly well health-wise on them. I lost a few kilos of weight that I wanted to lose. I was never overweight. I was, uh, in my early 40s, I was a fairly extreme uh, non-competitive athlete. Uh, I kayak surfed three, four times a week right through the winter. Um, and uh, no time to do that nowadays. <laughs> um, 
so I, I was very, very pro-fat, and I, I'd found a number of niggly problems that I'd had health-wise simply went away. And that, that set me up very much in terms of, I like saturated fat, and I was curious as to, if you try to run your metabolism on lipid, what was different um, to if you tried to run, run your metabolism on glucose? And there's really, in, in terms of bulk calories, that's, that's all there is. So I sat down with biochemistry um, pictures, images, and counted up. Well, let's one step back. Well, when you go through biochemistry at vet school, presumably at med school as well, um, you have to learn the trichopoxylic acid cycle, you have to learn tricholysis, you have to learn all the cofactors, and you get examined on it, and then you forget it all. There's just, that, that's it, you're never going to use that again, but exactly. you've got the tick on the box for biochemistry, so they're not going to kick you out at the end of the year. Uh, you can carry on and do something uh, relevant and clinical. Um, so I, I kind of knew that, that there was the TCA, and I knew that there was glycolysis, and I knew there were the cofactors, and I knew that there was the electron transport chain. But you don't have to integrate all of those together to pass biochemistry. <laughs> They're not looking for understanding. They're looking, can you draw me a picture of the TCA? There you go, tick, box, you got it. Um, so I started from absolute basics, and I had to work out what exactly FADH2 was, it's a cofactor. The, the reaction won't run without it. But acyl-CoA, uh, coenzyme A is a cofactor as well, but it doesn't generate energy. So FAD going to FADH2, it's a cofactor, but you don't really think about it. What the hell does FADH2 do? And NADH, it's all over the place. There's NADH here, it's there, it's... it's and it, it wasn't until I actually sat down and worked out that these were energy electron carrying molecules that could be used to generate heat or to generate an ATP or proton gradient, um, that I kind of started to get some idea of what the differences might be um, between running on glucose, which is almost pure uh, NADH generating it does a little obviously we you know there's a little bit of FADH2 from substantive dehydrogenase but the bulk of it goes through complex one the electron transport chain we'll quick resume of that in a moment if you like um, and that uh, when you start to look at fats uh, then it depended on your fat but the, the bottom line is I started off with palmitate because Mathematics is easy, and the diagrams are easy, um, and it turns out that it, it, it makes um, not quite um, uh, not not quite um, to a 0.5 ratio between FADH to an NADH. Um, it's very close to it, but it's never quite makes 0.5. Um, and glucose is nothing like that. So you're actually putting inputs into the electron transport chain in different ways. Um, and I'd, I'd kind of started looking at that. And Dave Speyer from Holland emailed me and said, I've got this paper on 
the generation of reactive oxygen species based on the kind of things that your back of the envelope arithmetic is leading you to. And that was, it kind of gave me the idea that I might be on the, um, on the right track. Oh, uh, by the way, sorry, if I keep leaning back away from the microphone, I, I remember when um, I've done one other podcast and my voice volume goes up and down, you kind of know how much I lean back in the chair, with apologies. Um, so Dev Speyer emailed me and I kind of twigged that maybe we were onto, onto something there, it might actually be something that mattered. Um, so can we take that step back and yeah. just go back and talk about electron transport chain? Yeah, let's let's unpack the electron transport I'm, chain. I'm, I'm, I can see that I'm going to start wandering off into well, inputting <laughs> here and inputting there and inputting the other place. Let's just get the basics in place. Yeah, let's get the um, basics in place. Do you want to? Should we bring up a screen share of the electron transport chain? I've got a couple that, that I can That'd share. Yeah. Okay. So let's let me pull this up. So as as per usual, guys listening, if you're listening on the uh, the podcast on iTunes or wherever you you may want to at least reference the beginning part of this podcast or some parts of this podcast on YouTube uh, or at heartandsoil.co which is our website and all of the videos are going to be there because we're going to be showing a lot of pictures and in this case a picture is worth um, a thousand words squared because uh, this will be some complex stuff so what we're gonna talk about is the electron transport chain. And Peter's already kind of hinted at this in this explanation. So if what we've talked about so far with NADH and FADH2 has lost you, hold on, we're gonna back up, we'll, we'll unpack it a little bit. But I love what Peter said about the mainstream lipid hypothesis. As you guys know, last week I released a podcast with Dave Feldman where we talked about cholesterol and lipids. I am no advocate of the lipid hypothesis, nor am I an advocate for polyunsaturated fats, but the mainstream medical establishment is. And this is so cool that Peter started from the same place. We all have our bias. We admit that. But you generate a hypothesis from your place of bias. And my place of bias is that animal foods, which are rich in saturated fat, are the best foods for humans. But why does the cardiology community tell us otherwise? Why does the cardiology community tell us to eat oils pressed from seeds that we never would have had in our evolution? And then when you think about evolutionary levels of uh, linoleic acid, like I discussed with Chris Kenobi, the ophthalmologist, we've never had levels of omega-6 or other polyunsaturated fats in our human evolution that are anything like we have now. So Peter and I are incidentally starting from the same bias, which is that humans have had way more saturated fat, both C16 palmitic acid and C18 stearic acid in our diet, along with other saturated fats, than these polyunsaturated fats. But the cardiology community would tell you otherwise. So either we're right or they're right. And, and we, we, you know, <laughs> let's, just, let's just be clear about it. But we're all looking for the truth. And there are big consequences here, which might have to be, you know, discussed, which are atherosclerosis, heart attacks, uh, Alzheimer's disease, strokes, <laughs> most of chronic disease. So it's a very interesting conversation. But let's talk about the electron transport chain. So Peter has a blog on his web, uh, has a blog called Hyperlipid. And in that blog, there's a thread, which I encourage many of you to read called Protons, the Protons thread. And we can talk about why it's called Protons. It'll make sense why it's called Protons when we look at this electron transport chain. But let's have, I'll have you walk us through your thoughts on the ETC, the electron transport chain, Peter, and then we'll go from there, okay? Yeah, let's do it. That's okay, fine. So, 
So this is, as Peter appropriately correctly says, in medical school and veterinary school, um, I went to medical school, Peter went to veterinary school, they, they, they make you learn these concepts individually, but they never tie them together, which is what's so cool about Peter's work. So tell us about the electron transport chain, Peter. And I've got another diagram as well, which is from um, one of the blogs, which is more complex, which we'll, we'll show in later, which shows all the inputs to the ETC with, um, with uh, glycerol 3-phosphate dehydrogenase, uh, the succinate dehydrogenase, et cetera. But let's start with the basic one for now. Yeah, this is the, this is the basic one. Um, and uh, essentially out of the TCA, uh, tricarboxylic acid cycle or citric acid cycle that we've got here, um, you, the, 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 uh, you could call it the, the movable um, uh, energy source which is produced is uh, NADH. Um, you can't, you, you, uh, and you can buy um, NADH as a laboratory reagent, it's, it, it's not embedded in an enzyme or anything like that, it's just there and uh, it can be produced by the TCA or the citric acid cycle. And you can essentially do nothing with it in terms of producing energy unless you put it through complex one. So this is complex one um, down at the start of the electric tra tra electron transport chain. Um, well, I, I, down the bottom of the picture, I like, I like that complex one down there better because we're there. So if you develop an if you generate NADH, it's going to go through complex one. It isn't going to go anywhere else at all. And uh, that's its target, that's what's used. And each time you feed complex one, complex one pumps protons uh, from the matrix of the mitochondrion to the, uh, just outside the inner mitochondrial membrane and is used to develop a, almost like a hydraulic supply of protons that want to get back into the mitochondrial matrix. But NADH, the cofactor for many of the reactions, at least three of them in the TCA, and NADH is produced as part of glycolysis, um, uh, eventually end up feeding complex one. They don't really feed anywhere else in, in any bulk amount that you need to worry about. So that's complex one. That's one input to the ability to pump protons, which is then used to generate uh, ATP using uh, it's complex five, um, but the ATP synthase. So complex one just deals with NADH and nothing else deals with NADH. So uh, I think that was my starting point. Uh, FAD is the other energy consuming substrate, uh, energy carrying substrate. Um, and classically there it's shown in complex two. Um, you can't, the, the, the body doesn't have a supply of FAD or FADH2. It's almost invariably embedded in a protein. You can't just take it out and shift it around. You can't transport it in or out of a mitochondrion. Um, you can't buy it off the shelf as a reagent grade drug. It's embedded in a protein uh, almost every instance I can think of. And uh, complex two, as part of the citric acid cycle, generates FADH2, which then puts electrons into the um, electron transport chain. So um, as does complex one, obviously. Um, uh, 
So either FADH2 is putting electrons into the electron transport chain, uh, and I think we've got a nice uh, Q down there. Um, and so uh, coenzyme Q um, in its oxidized form is just coenzyme Q, and it can either accept two electrons with protons to form coenzyme QH2 from um, either from complex two or from complex one. So that either of them can input, um, and they both end up converting uh, oxidized coenzyme Q into reduced coenzyme Q. So that, that, that's the first two steps. And um, uh, all of this, this diagram that we got up at the moment, um, this is the classic um, uh, electron transport chain that I learned for, um, for biochemistry. Uh, and it's missing um, several other inputs into um, the coenzyme Q. I call it the CoQ couple um, because the, um, it's a combination of QH2 and Q, as we've got nasty there on that diagram. Um, and um, it turns around and around and around, and the, uh, the, the, the CoQ accepts electrons from complex two or complex one, uh, and it donates them to complex three from where things go, more protons are pumped. And eventually we end up down um, with the electrons being donated to oxygen having pumped a significant number of protons that can then be used to generate ATP. So, so we basically have the, the uh, initially have the two inputs, complex two and complex one, um, they're non-related to each other. One of them's embedded in the trichloroxylic acid cycle and the other deals with NADH. So I've looked at that amount. The next input, um, that I realized I'd missed was um, from beta oxidation of fatty acids. And uh, that, that wasn't on many of the diagrams of the electron transport chain. Um, now, when fatty acids are oxidized, if they're saturated, the first step of beta oxidation generates FADH2. It can't just sit there as FADH2 because it's always uh, protein bound. So it's um, generated and transported as a flavor protein, a protein with FAD, either FAD plus embedded in it or, or FAD embedded in it or FADH2 embedded in it. And that protein with the FAD molecule, either oxidized or reduced, is transportable and that can go to the inner surface of the mitochondrial membrane where there is a dehydrogenase. So at that point, the FADH2 can donate two electrons again to coenzyme Q. That goes down into the CoQ couple. So there's input from um, FAD, uh, FAD transporting flavor protein, or there's input from complex two in competition with input from complex one, which is dealing with the NADH, and they're all three of them trying to put electrons onto the CoQ couple. That's everything has to go through the CoQ couple. CoQ couple. There's no other way down the rest of the. Um, there's no other way down the uh, rest of the electron transport chain, um, and it's like a bottleneck.
And I suppose eventually we'll get back to talk about uh, the glycero-3-phosphate shuttle. And that's next input into um, the electron transport chain again using FADH or FADH2 embedded in an enzyme. It's not shifted around. It's on the inner, that's, that's on the outer mitochondrial, outer surface of the inner mitochondrial membrane. And again, that's in competition with the other three, is it, inputs we've got at the moment? Um, there are a couple of other inputs as well, but, but, but in terms of bulk inputs, at the front end, at the beginning, everything is competing to get electrons onto coenzyme Q. Perfect. That's a great start. Can we pause there for a moment and I'll yeah, sure. run through it with you? Okay. So just so you guys, if you guys are listening, I'm sure your heads are spinning. We are we are doing some biochemical dancing right now. But this is what's so interesting is that when you go to medical school, you kind of nod off, you fall asleep in biochemistry, you roll your eyes when the biochemistry professor gets up there and tells you about the Krebs cycle, which is also known as the TCA cycle. But these biochemical processes and glycolysis are at the center of human health and disease. And this is really a revival of biochemistry here. So I just wanna make sure that those listening who are not biochemists, who are not physicians, uh, understand what we're talking about here. It's, it's not as esoteric as you think. It's, it's running your biology. Now, on Peter's blog, Hyperlipid, the first post in that Proton series is a post about Peter going to the coast of England, I presume, looking for serpentine yeah. rock. Yeah. Cornwall, yeah. Looking for serpentine rock and, and seeing the way that these proton gradients can develop in nature. I'll let you guys read that. It's a little bit complex geology, but what we have in the mitochondria of human, every, almost every cell in humans, except red blood cells, is a proton gradient between the inner and outer membranes, or I should say the innermost space of the mitochondria called the matrix and the intermembrane space. So mitochondria are in every cell in your body except red blood cells. And this is what we call endosymbiosis. There's a lot of good evidence to suggest that sometime in the primordial ooze, one cell engulfed a bacteria and that every cell in our body except red blood cells carries around these primordial bacteria. And that's why there are two membranes. And between these two membranes are where the magic of life happens because we create this protons gradient. All right, so this is what's so fascinating that, that potentially the reason that you are listening to this, the reason that Peter and I are talking to you today as multicellular complex organisms, relatively speaking, I mean, I listened to a recent Joe Rogan podcast with Bob Lazar, which makes me think that you know maybe there are aliens, which is a fascinating aside, and maybe we're not actually that complex, but we are complex organisms who appear to have some sort of consciousness. The reason we are doing this is because our mitochondria in these cells of our bodies were perhaps primordial bacteria that were engulfed and there's this symbiotic relationship. Regardless, you can say at a very high level that mitochondria create energy by making this proton gradient between the membranes of their, um, between the membranes of their, between their membranes. And so this is what we first looked at. So I want you guys to know that this diagram, the first one we looked at here, this is a mitochondrion. Uh, this is a mitochondria. We're not even looking at the cytoplasm. We're not, this is inside the inside of a mitochondria. Now, mitochondria exist within your cells. So we're talking about here, this is the inner part of the mitochondria, the matrix. This is like rooms in a house. 
And that the electron transport chain is embedded in the inner mitochondrial membrane. The TCA cycle, the citric acid cycle, the Krebs cycle, those are all synonyms, is within the matrix of the mitochondria. As Peter said, it generates NADH. And I'll show you what the citric acid cycle looks like, guys. This is the, the, the death of medical students all over the world. You don't need to have the details, but it's a cycle discovered by Hans Krebs, who I believe won a Nobel Prize for this. Um, and it, pyruvate comes in, and pyruvate is made in the cytoplasm in a process called glycolysis. And so you're in the cytoplasm of a cell, moving across the membrane, and you have acetyl-CoA in the mitochondria, and then oxaloacetate combines with acetyl-CoA to form citrate. Now you are inside the mitochondria. You run it through this cycle, and you make NADH along the cycle. As Peter said, these NADH molecules then deliver electrons to the electron transport chain. There's one step that's very unique, and it's an enzyme called succinate dehydrogenase down here that's actually embedded in the inner mitochondrial membrane. And you see this Q going from Q to QH2. That is, that is essentially, that is coenzyme Q. And coenzyme Q is being reduced. It is gaining electrons. If you guys have heard me talk about this in the past, gain of electrons is reduction. What we are talking about, what fuels life is the movement of electrons. This is what's so profound to me. If electrons don't move, life doesn't happen. So all of these complex biochemical processes in your body are generating electron carriers that move electrons. And electrons have to travel with protons on NADH, on FADH2, but you are essentially, as Peter said, reducing Q at, at uh, succinate dehydrogenase in the Krebs cycle, along with all of this NADH input from glycolysis. So let's go back to the, the mitochondrial membrane. Uh, I apologize, Peter, if I'm... Um, no, no, clarify. That's good. All right. I'm trying to make sure that you guys all understand this, but it's a very interesting process going on here. And I think that for so many people listening, we'll, we'll have to go through it a few times. And again, if you guys have questions, you can listen to the podcast with Brad Marshall, who's also a huge fan of, of uh, Peter's work. We talked about all this there as well. TCA cycle, I just showed it to you, generating NADH um, and NADH delivering to complex one. This is going to be super important in a moment. Complex one moves that electron to coenzyme Q, which moves it to three. I also talked about this with Ben Bickman. Here's succinate dehydrogenase, not really labeled on this graphic, but complex two is succinate dehydrogenase. Succinate goes to fumarate. There's an FAD, uh, FADH, which becomes FADH2 embedded in this. And FADH is actually, I believe, synthesized from riboflavin. So I'm really interested in the B vitamins. And we use riboflavin, which is a a precursor to make FADH. So if you don't have enough riboflavin, you're not going to have enough FADH. Where's riboflavin? It's in liver, you guys. Where is coenzyme Q? Well, you make a little bit of it, but it's also in muscle meat, especially heart. So one of the things that's fascinating for me in animal eaters is that their coenzyme Q levels are really high. I see people in my practice and in the carnivore community, animal-based, nose-to-tail community, who have a lot of coenzyme Q. <clears throat> we supplement with CoQ, uh, a lot of times, but you don't need to if you're eating nose to tail. What do statins do? One of the negative things that statins do is they inhibit the production of coenzyme Q, you guys. This is a hugely important cofactor that moves the electrons, that drives life, and it is downstream from HMG-CoA reductase. Statins inhibit that step, which is one of the reasons that a cardiologist who also recommends that you eat vegetable oils that are high in polyunsaturated fats, and we'll talk about why that's a problem in a moment, uh, 
they're going to give you a statin if you eat too much meat, and that's going to prevent you from making coenzyme Q. So clearly something is off here. You want lots of coenzyme Q10 or coenzyme Q. So that's this, it moves the electron to complex three. And as Peter is saying, essentially what you're dealing with here is a bottleneck. This came up with Brad as well. We're dealing with a bottleneck because there are multiple inputs to the Q, to the CoQ couple. Now this is a complex diagram I flashed for a moment when Peter was talking. You see up here, here's the NAD to NADH inputs coming from pyruvate, uh, many other things uh, going into complex one. We may talk about rhodonone in this podcast. We may talk about metformin. Coplex one passes it to coenzyme Q, the CoQ couple. Here is um, the electron, well, you can see here, the succinate dehydrogenase passing electrons to CoQ. Here's the, here's the other input that Peter was talking about to coenzyme Q, electron transferring flavor protein, ETF, dehydrogenase coming from beta oxidation. What's beta oxidation? Beta oxidation is the process by which your cells burn fat. So this is another really important thing, and it's, I'm glad that we can sort of uh, unpack it all. Let me show you guys real quickly what beta oxidation is. So again, thanks to Wikipedia for this one. In the adipocyte, in the fat cell, you have stored fat. When insulin levels are low, we're going to come back to all this. This makes tons of sense. What does insulin do? Peter knows this. He's, he's really the one that, that, that taught us all this. Peter's the theory or idea, which I think is totally true, and both myself and Tommy Wood would agree with this, is that insulin inhibits lipolysis. So when insulin signaling is low, hormone-sensitive lipase is active, triglycerides in the adipocyte are lipolyzed, and you get free fatty acids in the blood. Then those free fatty acids are, are put onto albumin. They move through the body and they, these actual free fatty acids, which we're definitely going to talk about, move through the body. They end up in a metabolizing cell. The cell then breaks them down or at least adds an acetyl-CoA to them um, and then moves them into the mitochondria via the carnitine uh, shuttle, um, carnitine palmitoyl oil transferase. Now, now the fatty acids are in the mitochondria. So you have to go from the bloodstream, from the fat cell to the bloodstream, to the peripheral cells across this membrane, into the cytoplasm, and then into the mitochondria. And then in the mitochondria, you do beta oxidation. And this little cute little graphic on, on uh, Wikipedia shows a little scissors. When you cut fat cells, when you cut fat molecules, excuse me, of varying lengths, Peter talked about palmitate, which is a C16, when you cut these into smaller chains, you get, you get FADH and NADH produced because you introduce a double bond in that process. The process of beta oxidation introduces a double bond. This is, again, a very complex diagram. Don't get bogged down, you guys. But you have a fatty acyl-CoA and you have acyl-CoA dehydrogenase that introduces a double bond. And FADH is produced when you introduce that double bond. And then at the double bond, you get oxidation. It's cleaved and you get um, an acetyl-CoA, which is a two-carbon unit being broken off. So successively, what your body does is it breaks these longer chain fats into two carbon units of acetyl-CoA. And in the process, it makes both NADH and FADH2. So these are all the inputs into the electron transport chain. And you can get FADH2 coming from both succinate dehydrogenase and electron transferring flavor protein dehydrogenase. Yeah, that's part of beetroot station. Yep. 
Beta oxidation, yeah. Did I do all that okay, Peter? Yeah, that's good, that's good. Okay, and so as Peter is saying, what we're really talking about here, the, the, the centerpiece of this conversation is a traffic jam. It's, it's the 450 in LA, or I think the 405, I don't know, I've been out of California too long now. It's a traffic jam. The M4, in, the M4 and the M25 in, in England, M25 yes. particularly. Yeah, yeah, you have multiple inputs, you have multiple on-ramps, and they all go through coenzyme Q coming from animal meat yeah. and organs, and then coenzyme Q is gonna pass these electrons to complex two. Now, what's so interesting here and what we'll talk about is that when there's a traffic jam and you get inputs from NADH and FADH2, something very interesting happens. Is that a good place to pause, Peter? Is that a good place for you to pick it back up? Yeah, that's fine, yeah. Uh, I think probably the next thing, can you bring that previous diagram back up again? Yeah. Has that, that, there's a use because the coenzyme Q couple hands electrons on to complex three, then complex four, um, then is used by complex five to generate ATP. If the ATP is not needed, then complex five will stop using the proton gradient. It, the electrons will find it harder and harder to pump protons against a bigger membrane voltage. And eventually there is a negative feedback system in complex three, that's um, the, the, the complex which normally accepts electrons from the CoQ couple, which actually feeds back onto the CoQ couple. So it actually is yet another input to the CoQ couple, you get to a point where everything is trying to input to the CoQ couple and there is nowhere for the electrons to go on downstream. And that doesn't happen if there's a huge demand for electrons and pumped protons and ATP. But if the cell has got all the energy it needs, then everything backs up and everything feeds through the FAD inputs onto the CoQ couple. And if you combine that with a high membrane voltage, the electrons will simply squirt back the wrong way up through complex one. So it doesn't happen if there's a high demand for ATP or if there's a low supply of caloric input. But if the demand for ATP is being met or exceeded, it's a negative feedback system, things back up along the electron transport chain. And many of the, if you think about the input at the FADH2 level, there, as a, a pair of electrons is given from FADH2 to coenzyme Q, without pumping any protons, it's a, a simple transfer of reducing equipments, it generates heat. There's the, the, it's a certain amount of energy is being wasted. And if the membrane voltage is high and the electrons can't go the correct way, that large release of energy as the FADH2 donates the electrons allows it to go the wrong way back through complex one. And when, it, when the electrons go back through complex one, oh yeah, got that one. 
when they go back the wrong way through complex one, if there's any amount of NAD+, plus, which is the oxidized form of NADH, in the, site of, in the mitochondrial matrix, the electrons will just drop onto that. And it's been known for a very, very long time that under the right conditions, you can uh, generate NADH by pushing electrons the wrong way through complex one. Eventually, there will be so much NADH and so little NAD plus that there's nowhere for those electrons to go and they will end up jumping onto an oxygen molecule and produce superoxide, which is a reactive oxygen, reactive oxygen species. Um, it doesn't do it until everything is set up to say we really don't want any more metabolic substrate coming down the electron transport chain. So you've got to reduce all of the NADH or most of the NADH in the um, mitochondrial matrix. Uh, you've got to have a high membrane voltage and you've got to have a low demand for ATP. Once those things are all set up, then the cells will generate, the mitochondria complex one will generate reactive oxygen species. And the, the, the thing that came out of the proton thread and those concepts was that superoxide and or hydrogen peroxide are the stop signal saying, well, we don't need any more calories either being put into the electron transport chain or because hydrogen peroxide travels some distance away from the mitochondria or into the cell. So this is your stop button that, and it's not all or nothing, you don't suddenly stop accepting calories completely. You, 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 uh, it, it's, it's a graduated response. Your ATP demand is being met and met and met, so you want less and less and less calories, more and more superoxide and hydrogen peroxide should shut down the ingress of calories into that given cell. That's how the system is, is controlled. That, that, that again, again, there's that, uh, if I start going looking to the papers, it's, um, that, 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 that there was a paper we shared that was that um, insulin resistance is an antioxidant defense mechanism. And that was one of the very formative papers that I read very, very early on in the, um, when I was developing the, the ideas for the proton series was that insulin resistance is the way that a given cell says no. And in that paper, they go through three or four different types of insulin resistance. And they're very consistent that all of them overload, all of them generate reactive option species. That's the mechanism of insulin resistance. And um, uh, they're essentially all um, it's slightly different for the tumor necrosis factor alpha model that they used, but the vast majority of the models that they used in that paper that they discussed um, was by one mechanism or another were providing caloric overload. And if you provide caloric overload, the cell has to say no. Um, again, many, many years ago, I lost a, um, a paper. You, you lose papers sometimes. It's really frustrating. Um, and I lost a paper that posited the idea that excessive ATP production was potentially one of the drivers of uh, anabolism that would be a driver of cancer. 
Um, and clearly the, the cell doesn't want that, and the cell's got all the ATP it needs, it wants to stop the caloric input. That's, um, and that, that, that really was where um, the proton thread took me. And again, I had no idea I was going to end up there. That's just what the reading and the basics of the, the mechanics of the electron transport chain ended up. Do you want to go and should we talk about polyunsaturates now and saturates? And yeah, yeah. I'll share a couple of these papers real quickly because this is really where we're going. So this is one of the papers that I think is, is substantial. And again, yeah. all of the papers are linked in the show notes, guys, at heartandsoil.co. This is one of the foundational papers that, that Peter shared with me that you can find on his blog. High rates of superoxide production in skeletal muscle mitochondria respiring on both complex one and complex two linked substrates. Now, I give all of you electronic high fives if you wanna go through these, but basically I wanna put them out there because there, there is evidence, there's a lot of good science here. This is some pretty darn heady biochemistry to show that as Peter is suggesting, when you put inputs into the mitochondria through both complex one and complex two, which is succinate dehydrogenase, coenzyme Q, leading into, com leading into coenzyme Q, you get superoxide production. And that was this other uh, post that I was showing from Peter's blog, which is, uh, I believe these are Peter's doodles. And you can see- Yeah, they're my doodles. Yeah, they're great. Oh, <laughs> Another representation you have, this is another representation of the electron transport chain. The complexes are not all labeled here. So you can see Peter has labeled complex one, coenzyme Q. Uh, this is succinate dehydrogenase. He has glycerol 3-phosphate dehydrogenase right here and electron transferring flavoprotein dehydrogenase here on the inner mitochondrial membrane. I know I talk fast to you guys. This podcast is probably going to win the, win the award. <laughs> but you can see NADH coming in through complex one, going to coenzyme Q here, succinate dehydrogenase, leading uh, to complex, uh, um, excuse me, leading to coenzyme Q. Here, succinate dehydrogenase leading to coenzyme Q. And then this is sort of the problem here that their electrons can go backwards. And as Peter is saying, if there's enough NAD plus in the mitochondrial matrix, you can make NADH. But what really happens a lot of the time is you get H2O2, which is the byproduct of superoxide, which is O2 minus. So ultimately what we're talking about here, this is a good summary statement at this point in the podcast. Take a deep breath, listen to me right now. What we were talking about is making reactive oxygen species at the level of the mitochondria as a signal to the cell based on which nutrients are being used. Based at one level on the excess amount of calories and at another level, as we're gonna talk about, based on which type of fat is being used here at the level of beta oxidation. So this is what's so cool and why I got so interested in these ideas from Peter that both, this ties together glycolysis, the, the metabolism of glucose in the cytoplasm and you can get excess glucose causing uh, the cell to shut off to become essentially insulin resistant or you can get certain types of fat. Now, if you guys listen to the podcast I did with Ben Bickman, this is so important because so often insulin resistance is talked about as a negative thing, but you would be dead without insulin resistance. And this is why I don't like the term insulin resistance. It's not specific enough. What we're talking about pathologically with insulin resistance is metabolic dysfunction or the metabolic syndrome. And that looks very different than just straight insulin resistance. As we will talk about in this podcast, if you go into ketosis, if you fast, I would imagine Peter is insulin resistant right now. 
Because uh, yeah, I think that would be the case. Absolutely. Yeah, I think Peter is it, insulin resistant right now. It doesn't take long to get rid of it. That's, it's a, a, there are interesting papers that, that if you bonus me with intravenous insulin, I would still develop hypoglycemia, but I'd do it at about between half an hour and an hour later than somebody who was conventionally insulin resistant. Now that's not the same as having to carb load before doing an oral glucose tolerance test. If you take somebody who um, has um, going to go on a fast and you bolus them with IV insulin and they're insulin resistant, um, uh, they'll, they'll develop some degree of hypoglycemia. And when they get hypoglycemic enough, um, they'll get the shivers and the shakes and that I've got to eat now or else. If you starve that person for a month or two and then bolus them with um, intravenous insulin, they will become profoundly hypoglycemic still, but it won't happen as quickly as if they're adapted to eating carbohydrate, but it will still happen. And I, I, I personally, I feel that insulin tolerance tests are much more interesting than glucose tolerance tests because um, when you low carb for long enough, obviously you, you, you shut down the um, uh, signaling system for secreting insulin in response to carbohydrate. It, it, it's, um, it's been known for decades that if you're going to do an OGGT um, when you're low carb, you've got to carb load for three days, four days, something like that. In fact, it might be a bit longer than that if you've been very, very long term. Um, but the um, but you are insulin resistant, but given enough insulin, you can reverse that very, very quickly, um, about an hour, um, 30, 40 minutes usually. Um, and, and there are a small number of studies out there. I don't think they would get ethics approval for doing them nowadays to, to give someone uh, intravenous insulin um, when they've been fasting for three or four weeks. <laughs> but, but it's been done and the papers are out there. Anyway, we were talking about insulin resistant. It's almost always adaptive. I'm, I'm, I, I almost can't envisage situations where insulin resistance is maladaptive. Um, uh, and that, that applies right through to type 2 diabetes, because in type 2 diabetes, your, your, your fat cells are too big. Um, uh, maybe not all of them, but, but enough of them are too big to be leaking free fatty acids. And you're just not set up to input into the electron transport chain High, dose, high amount, large amounts of um, beta oxidation and large amounts of glycolysis. Um, so the cocuple is going to try its best to say no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there will be insulin resistance. And that's insulin resistance. Now, again, the, the, the terminology gets very sticky here because I haven't had breakfast this morning. It's early morning in Texas. I am insulin resistant right now. I have ketones in my blood right now. I check my ketones before this podcast in honor of Peter. And I have ketones, you guys, even though I do eat some carbohydrates and we can talk about that. But I, so I'm insulin resistant because my, my, my body is saying, this is how we spare glucose for the tissues that need it. So yes. I want to unpack this. Absolutely. I do not have metabolic dysfunction because as Peter said, and as we're going to get to in this podcast, we're going to tie it all together here, you guys. Metabolic dysfunction, metabolic syndrome is when the fat cells get too big. That's a few steps down the road here. So bear with us. But I just want to show one thing really quickly because this is a beautiful post on your blog, Peter. And then I want to talk about polyunsaturated fats is this picture and uh, not that picture. Nice picture. <laughs> is this picture. 
Do you want to tell us what this is? Yeah, it looks like complex one to me. That's yeah, complex that's one. And, yeah. and iron sulfur clusters. And yes. the iron sulfur clusters in complex one. So what's going on here? So what's so cool, I read this on your blog, is that when we actually create this superoxide, we get, you know, you're getting, you're getting uh, protons, or, you know, out here, or you're getting electrons. Yeah out here that are, that are being picked up by oxygen. They actually go onto the iron sulfur clusters of complex one. And this is the N1A part of it, right? Yeah, it's up the top near, near, the, near the flavin molecule. Uh-huh, up here. Uh, yeah, that's flavin mononucleotide. Um, and uh, N1A is, is up the top there. And it, it, again, N1A is controversial. There are um, nicely split studies that show that you can do genetic things to the anchoring of N1A and it makes no difference to superoxide. And there are equally good studies showing that it's probably the source of the superoxide that forms the hydrogen peroxide that is the primary distant cell signaling molecule. Um, and uh, I, I rather like it. I like, the, I like N1A. <laughs> it, it, it's a, uh, it, I think in most of the time, it's because uh, the flavin mononucleotide takes one electron at a time and the NADH takes, provides two electrons, um, then you've got to do something with the spare electron. And it looks like most of the time that spare electron is stuck onto um, N1A. And then the first one goes down the ion sulfur clusters and N1A can provide another, the second electron to go down the ion sulfur clusters uh, till they get down to the CoQ binding pocket uh, and, and then you can put two electrons at the same time onto the CoQ, and that's you reducing the CoQ couple. Um, but that, uh, 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 the evidence that that's how it works seems to me to be quite convincing, but people aren't looking at what happens in reverse when you've got a, a high membrane voltage and electrons are being forced the wrong way, and all the NADH that you can comfortably form has been formed, then where does the um, electron squirt to my, my, uh, uh, my, my view and uh, the, the small group of researchers in, in, this, in Russia um, who are clearly not that popular, um, but they, uh, they, they feel that N1A is, is, is the source of the superoxide. It isn't too crucial really because provided the superoxide is formed and is, it's not being formed accidentally. This is a deliberate evolutionary hugely conserved mechanism for regulating the input of calories into a cell via a signal given from the mitochondria. So um, whether it comes from the flavin mononucleotide in complex one, whether it comes from a different uh, ion sulfur cluster, it, it's not that crucial, but I like N1A, it's took out there on its side and that would be a good, a good place for it to be. Yeah, the other thing that's, that's worth mentioning, and Dave Spire goes through in huge detail is how appallingly difficult it is to prepare and study functional isolated mitochondria. These, these, these little organelles are so far out of their working environment that you can, if you adjust the conditions that they're working under, um, you can almost show anything. It, it, uh, uh, and once you start with um, blockade of the far end of the electron transport chain and backing electrons up pharmacologically, then electrons just spew out all over the place. Um, it's like having a leaky plumbing system that you 
that you block a drain on and, and it just leaks water everywhere. So Dave Spire has a long discussion about how difficult it is to interpret um, uh, mitochondrial studies. Uh, and the, 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 in one of the ones we talked about earlier, where they were talking about complex one and complex two substrates causing reactive oxygen species, they didn't get a very good signal from palmitate. Uh, they use Carnotyl palmitate, which should produce tons of reactive oxygen species. The problem is that palmitate is an uncoupling agent, and the, mm -hmm. the, the minute you drop an uncoupling agent onto the electron transport chain, you lower the membrane voltage, and the minute you lower the membrane voltage, even by a relatively small amount, you stop generating active oxygen species. It's, uh, and, and again, the, the, these mitochondrial preps are so far away from physiology um, that trying to work exactly what's going on when all you've got is a, a, is a photon output from a, a, some sort of infrared colorimeter looking, looking through your preparation, you have to try and work out from these uh, obscure traces on graphs um, what you think is actually happening uh, in your prep. And then you have to try and convince yourself that what's happening in your prep is what's happening in real life. So it's all messy. Anyway, I'll shut up now. <laughs> we do the best we can, but okay. So let's connect this with polyunsaturated fats and saturated yeah. fats. Yeah. So, so far, so far we've talked about all these inputs to the electron transport chain. We talked about glycolysis. We talked about the Krebs cycle. We talked about beta oxidation. How does this connect to, I talked about you know, the, the fatty acid oxidation and the adipocytes, the transport to the cells, carnitine pulmonary oil transferase. Let's bring it back to really something that's a little more relevant to people listening. Yeah. How does this, how do saturated fats and polyunsaturated fats get connected here? What's the difference? Well, I think you, you have to bring the whole thing back to the first step of beta oxidation. Right. Where the FADH2, which is going to be transported in electron transporting flavor protein, to the CoQ couple isn't formed. Every time you have a double bond in a fatty acid, you will get NADH produced because that's, I think, third step of beta oxidation. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but that first step, you will lose the FAD. And it's just not needed because the double bond is already there. The oh, FAD yeah. is put in as you generate, uh, is generated as you put in a double bond, which is part of the process of beta oxidation. So if you're not generating the electron transporting flavor protein, you will not be inputting at that point to the CoQ couple through the electron transporting flavor protein dehydrogenase on the inner surface of the mitochondrial membrane. Basically, there, there will be a missing input um, for every double bond that you um, have in the fatty acid, which is generating input to the electron transport chain. Every time you miss an FAD input, it means that you are going to have less ability to drive reverse electron transport, and you are going to have less ability to say no to the subsequent input of calories. So if we go back to the concept that insulin resistance is um, in the postprandial period, uh, never mind fasting, fasting is a different matter, but in the postprandial period, when your um, bloodstream is awash with calories, at some point, the cells will have all the calories they need, they have to say no, and they say no by reverse electron transport and hydrogen peroxide generation. 
that's not going to happen automatically if you've got a stack of double bonds in there. Yeah. So there's not so much FAD made. There's still the NADH being made and the ratio changes. Um, and it makes it harder for the cells to say no to more calories. And every double bond makes the problem worse. Yeah. So I think that that's, was the, the, the next insight that came from the protons concept is that the polyunsaturates refuse to trigger insulin signaling. They will eventually trigger it. If you put enough polyunsaturates in, eventually the NADH and whatever basic level of FADH that they're producing will eventually combine together to limit calorie ingress. But at that point, there will still be calories coming through in excess of what the cell needs. And we come back to that there'll be continued insulin signaling and that will be taking the excess calories and converting it into lipid in the cytoplasm or glycogen in the cytoplasm. And so that, that, that was the next step I took in terms of trying to make head and a tail of why polyunsaturates might be bad for you and why they would generate cellular lipid accumulation. I don't think anyone worries about glycogen accumulation, but lipid accumulation people worry about. Lipid accumulation is bad. Accumulating fat is bad in, in regular cells or adipocytes. And so essentially what you're saying here, and this is what's so fascinating, is that when you have a double bond in a molecule, because of beta oxidation, there is less of the FADH2 yeah. produced. And that FADH2 to NADH ratio, what you call the F to N ratio in your blog, and I can show yeah. a graphic there, you know, Peter has calculated the F to N ratio for different molecules, whether it's palmitic acid, stearic yeah. acid, which are 60. Spire helped me with that as well. Okay. Yeah. It's, got, it's got all sorts of calculations done, but there is a, there is a generic formula for the straight fatty acids. And linoleic acid has a lower F to N ratio. And glucose has a very low F to N ratio. Glucose is a little different. Yeah, but if we're just talking about fatty acids, linoleic acid has a lower F to N ratio. Every double bond you introduce has a lower F to N ratio. So the theory, if I'm, uh, if I'm re recapitulating it or, or you know, sort of reciting it properly, is that as you introduce double bonds into these fat molecules, whether it's a monounsaturate like oleic acid or a polyunsaturate like linoleic acid or a polyunsaturate like um, that, that's, that's different than linoleic acid, even a fish oil we can talk about, <laughs> um, an omega-3, um, they are preventing the cell from signaling that they are full. They are creating essentially inappropriate persistent insulin sensitivity. Absolutely. That Pathological insulin sensitivity sounds a contradiction of terms, but that's what it is. And that leads to cellular growth. That leads to excess nutrients coming in, which lead to excess lipid or glycogen in the cytoplasm or in the adipocyte. And then down the road, what we're worried about here is fat cells growing. We don't yes. want fat cells to grow because as you hinted at earlier, as I talked about with Ben Bickman and his podcast, as I talked about in a recent Controversial Thoughts video, I believe, and I think you believe, that the evidence really seems to clearly point to the fact that at the center of metabolic dysfunction, at the center of chronic disease, are fat cells that are hypertrophic rather than hyperplastic, meaning fat cells yeah. that are too big. Yes. And yes. in the podcast with Ben Bickman, I described it as, you get too big and the button on your pants bursts. And a lot of this pathology, I think, is around the notion that 
your fat cells are supposed to be able to divide. And there are, there are some products of linoleic acid metabolism, which we can talk about if we have time today, for HNE, for hydroxynononol, that appear to prevent the fat cells from being hyperplastic, which is when they divide and, and, and they can be small. You can have lots of small fat cells. You're still fat, but you can be fat and insulin. You can be fat and metabolically healthy or not metabolically broken. But if you are fat and you have big fat cells, you are going to be metabolically broken. And that is at the center of the chronic disease epidemic. Because when those fat cells get to be so big, they start leaking free fatty acids pathologically. There's no control over that. Do you want to walk us through all that a little bit? Yeah, well, they, 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 the control of free fatty acid entrance into cells is under insulin. So CD36 is the uh, CD36 is a cell surface membrane protein. It has many, many, many functions, um, but amongst its many functions is that it translocates fatty acids from extracellular to intracellular. And it works exactly the same way as the GLUT4 transporter does, um, that uh, insulin acts on cells and CD36 transports from the, um, I think it's from the endoplasmic reticulum onto the cell surface and facilitates fatty acid ingress into cells. At the same time, GLUT4 transporters will transport from their storage area to the cell surface membrane. And under insulin, any given cell will, that, that's capable of accepting fatty acids, it's going to have the CD36, there are a couple of other receptors as well, but, but the basic principle will be the same. Um, that um, insulin encourages the ingress not only of, or facilitates the ingress not only of glucose, but of fatty acids as well. However, um, the physiology is set up to limit at distal sites the delivery of both glucose and fatty acids also under the control of insulin. So insulin may well facilitate the entry of fats and glucose into cells, but it also acts on the adipocytes to shut down release of free fatty acids and on the liver to shut down the release of glucose. So it, it, it should theoretically be in balance. But if your fat cells are big enough, the control of lipolysis um, is subverted from insulin. Um, given enough insulin, you can still suppress lipolysis, but given a normal postprandial level, you're not going to get enough fatty acids out of plasma and into the adipocytes to protect the cells from having too much fat too much glucose, too many calories altogether. So very, very big adipocytes um, will have increased basal lipolysis and any lipolytic signal will be amplified. And in a healthy um, metabolism, uh, if, you, uh, uh, if you infuse insulin, uh, then theoretically what happens is that the cells, let's say your muscle cells in your arm should uptake fatty acids and glucose, but in fact, as you suppress fatty acid release from adipocytes, um, then the total amount of fatty acids that are translocated by CD36 actually goes down. There's more 30, CD36 on the plasma membrane, but there's, the free fatty acids have gone down from a, a fasting figure of 400 
down to 100 micrograms per um, litre, uh, micromoles per litre. Um, so the actual amount of fats which are translocated into a given cell go down, despite the fact that engineers try to facilitate their entries, because engineers acted distally on the fat cell to shut down, um, uh, shut down fatty acid production, and again, um, or, or release. Again, engineers looking to normalize, or engineering signaling is, uh, engineering signaling and or engineering resistance is looking to normalize the input of um, fats into a given cell, yeah? So um, when the cell's hungry, uh, it facilitates input. When the cell's full, it shuts it down. Um, but it's hard to shut it down if the fat cells are not responding to the signal, or even if the fat cells are responding and um, uh, lipoprotein lipase is shutting down, but there are, uh, there's another lipase that's controls basal lipolysis, kind of what it's called now. Is it ATG? I think it might well be, yes. Adipocyte um, triglyceride lipase? Yes. And perilipin A, yes. yeah. And again, you get into perilipins and all sorts of, what, what goes wrong in a fat cell. Uh, it's, and it's not automatically insulin resistance. The, 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 the adipocytes appear to become insulin resistant very, very late on. They can certainly do it, um, but they're usually quite willing to accept um, more fat for um, way into metabolic syndrome when the free fatty acids in the bloodstream are too high. And right. in the past, I've thought about it in this way, and you can correct me if I'm not thinking about it properly, that really adipocytes are the center. And insulin resistance, pathologic insulin resistance, which I think is more properly termed metabolic dysfunction, yeah. was very confusing for me until I thought about it as an adipocyte-centric process. If I thought about what was happening at the level of the fat cell, what was happening at the level of the adipocyte, it made way more sense. And the reason I say that is because at the level of the fat cell, if the fat cells get too big, they just start spewing out free fatty acids. And that is really the one of they, the- they, they spew out saturated fats, not polyunsaturates. Right. And that, because when you look at the fatty acid composition of obese and diabetic people, it's not high in um, polyunsaturates, it's high in saturates. Right. And I, I've never worked out why that's the case, but it is the case. Um, and uh, when, Again, just this morning, I was looking at a, 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 an observation study on obese dogs, and they were saying that the erythrocyte membranes are low in polyunsaturates and high in saturates, but nobody's worked out that I've been able to find why overstretched adipocytes release saturated fats preferentially. But we know when you put people on ketogenic diets that the polyunsaturates in their bloodstream go up, which you could look as a bad thing or a good thing. <laughs> I don't like it much, um, but, but that's what happens. And um, there's very good papers to show that. Uh, I don't think it would persist. Eventually, you just get rid of the polyunsaturates. Yeah, you wonder whether the polyunsaturates are just being sort of released and that eventually it'll change. Because as I've talked about in previous podcasts, humans don't make polyunsaturated fats. No. And all the polyunsaturated fats in our adipocytes are polyunsaturated fats that we have stored. Yes. So, so we probably don't want to be full of polyunsaturated fats. Well, did, and did you pick up Sowers posts? Um, this is the guy who did xenografts, where he transplanted tumors into rats and then fasted them. And when you fast them, they release a ton of polyunsaturates, which convert into tumor growth promoters. And just by not feeding them for a few days, he could make the tumors grow like wildfire. Um, and that, that scared the pants off me. If you, if you, if you're sitting there with the adipocytes full of polyunsaturated fats, 
that, that's not a good situation to be in. And uh, I think it's Tucker's comment was, get rid of the polyunsaturates before you develop cancer. <laughs> that's, that's nice as a retrospectoscope. But, uh, but no, there, there are issues with what you have stored and why you have stored it. And uh, you, we, don't yeah. want, we don't want our fat cells to be full of polyunsaturated fats. And I'm going to have Tucker Goodrich on the podcast soon. That'll pair well with this one. But I, I, it's such a fascinating idea that, that the, amount, the types of fat in our blood um, can come from both the diet or from the fat cells. But then when we have, when we have high levels of free fatty acids in the blood, that's going to signal to our cells generally to become insulin resistant. Now that can be part of a defense mechanism in the setting of metabolic syndrome, or it can be part of a genetic condition known as uh, Dunnigan uh, lipodystrophy, which we'll talk about in a moment, which is a monogenic form of insulin resistance. But, you know, generally speaking, just tie it back because we're getting a little bit in the weeds here. What we're talking about is that if you eat polyunsaturated fats, if we eat too many of them, because we need a small amount. Yes. There are very small amounts in our food. You know, whether you're eating a woolly mammoth, Peter's got a great post on his blog about woolly mammoth fat composition. It looks about like the composition of a cow. You know, they only have, they only have one or 1.3% linoleic acid in their fat, which is what I've been talking about. We don't want to be eating animals that have lots of polyunsaturates in their fat if we believe this model to be true because that excess polyunsaturates or excess double bonds in the, in the molecules is going to really kind of muck up the ratio between FADH2 and NADH in beta oxidation, which is going to cause our cells to, mean, to remain sort of persistently insulin sensitive too long. CD36 goes to the cell membrane, as does GLUT4 both allowing the ingress of free fatty acids and glucose and our cells get really big and full of stuff. Yeah. This, is a, this is a switch in our body that says, I am it's full. Exactly a switch. It looks and, very like a semiconductor. It, it reminds me of um, a transistor or a field effect transistor, something like that, or a, 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 a controllable diode. That, that's essentially what evolution has come up with. And, and we're kind of breaking that with linoleic acid. And I had to think about this evolutionarily and think, well, there's linoleic acid in the environment. It can't be completely toxic to us. No, it's not. But thinking about it anthropologically made a lot of sense to me that, that evolutionarily, we would never have gotten this much linoleic acid because we just, we're not eating a lot of corn. Yeah. We're not eating a lot of nuts and seeds. Those are, those are basically survival foods. And if we were eating those foods, maybe we were preparing for winter. Well, getting fat at the beginning of winter is a damn good thing to do. Right, right. So it depends how easy mammoths were to hunt in the winter. That might not have been too difficult. If they were have, yeah. But I thought this was so cool that you had this evolutionary signal, maybe to eat nuts in the winter if you can't hunt mammals. But if you're eating animal fat, your body's going to be thin, which is why we made Firestarter at Hardened Soil, which is why we want you guys to eat animal fats, and why we started the whole podcast with the notion that saturated fat is good for us because it's in animals. And we're talking about stearic acid and palmitic acid and other saturated fats. Animal fats are good for humans, but Peter says it so well in his blog, and I've echoed it, your cardiologist might just have given you atherosclerosis by recommending polyunsaturated vegetable oils that are evolutionarily inconsistent for the last 70 years, which is why we do what we do, because we believe this to be untrue and dangerous. And either we're right or the cardiologists are right, and we're gonna find out. And I, I tripped over it, basically. I, I, I mean, I had this basic bias that, that, that the cardiologists were wrong, but there was nothing about that bias that told me what I would find when I started adding up numbers of inputs to the electron transport chain. It, it just fell out of that, basically. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. So I want to I 
circle back, do a few more papers that'll illustrate this for people. This is, um, this is a diagram or a little, just a little calculation of the amount of NADH to FADH in, in these molecules. We, we're not really going to have time to get into the glucose ratios, but suffice it to say that FADH is much lower when you do glucose. Um, yeah. If you have palmitate, which is a 16 carbon saturated fat, it's, it's basically one to two. So the FADH, well, I mean, yeah. the, the F to N ratio is, is, yeah, it's essentially that um, depending on the carbon length. And, and what we're saying is that when you introduce a double bond, this FADH goes down because you don't introduce, you don't make an F, FADH2 when you introduce the double bond because it's already there in beta oxidation. We showed that earlier. And at a lowering F to N ratio means that your cells remain pathologically insulin sensitive when they're really supposed to be insulin resistant or at least have the signal that they're full. And this really does kind of boil down to satiety, uh, satiety at the level of our cells and satiety at the level of our brain. We're not going to have time to get into the ventromedial hypothalamus today and brain satiety. We're definitely going to have you back on for another podcast, Peter. But I want to talk about this paper real quickly because I do think it's fascinating and illustrates something very subtle that we're talking about here. Um, I'm sure you've seen this one, differential metabolic effects of saturated versus polyunsaturated fats. Yeah in ketogenic diets. And I'll, I'll, I'll comment on it. And then if you have comments, feel yeah. free to, to add to what I'm talking about. I'll go through it quickly, but basically they looked at saturated fats versus polyunsaturated fats in ketogenic diets. And this paper, this diagram looks complex and it's been cited by some saying, look, polyunsaturated fats are better because they make more beta hydroxybutyrate. They make yeah. more ketones, right? Yeah. Your glucose is lower. Look, you're more insulin sensitive with PUFAs, yeah. but then you take your step back and you think, wait, you're in ketosis. You're not supposed to be insulin sensitive. Absolutely, yes. I think, yeah. I think this paper is one of the best experiments done in humans, you guys, Absolutely. in humans. Now, there are a lot of papers that, 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 that I'll go through later in this podcast um, that I've talked about in the past that are with animal studies in mice. And people might say, oh, those are mouse studies. It's not the same. What we are talking about here, and I said this with Brad Marshall, is the electron transport chain. This is conserved across all species going back to C. elegans. <laughs> pretty, sure that, yeah. pretty sure that the results showing that mice get fat on polyunsaturated fats and get lean on stearic acid are relevant to humans, but fair criticism. So let's look at what happens in humans when you give them a bunch of polyunsaturated fat it breaks the mechanism. You are supposed yeah. to be insulin resistant in ketosis. That's yeah. how your body partitions glucose to the cells that need it. Yeah. And here you have a ketogenic diet based on, you know, the spawn of Satan, which is basically probably canola oil or, you know, safflower oil or soybean yeah. oil. And you see people who remain insulin sensitive when they're in ketosis. This is clear evidence. Yeah that polyunsaturated fats are breaking your metabolism. Yep. Your glucose is lower because it's going into your cells. Yep. <laughs> because it's making bigger cells, you're getting fat. And, and you're, you're inputting acetyl-CoA, you're generating more acetyl-CoA than you need to, which is why it spills out as, uh, as um, uh, ketosis. Basically, you, you, you've not got, with the polyunsaturates, you've not got the say no signal. So, Fats has continued to enter the liver, and okay, they get pumped out as more beta-hydroxybutyrate or acetoacetate. Um, but do you need that? That's the, that's the question. And it, 
my fallback is that, well, if saturated fats don't cause it, you probably don't need it. Yeah, you, you don't need it. <laughs> you don't need it. And it's just, it's really clear. Like this is a human study showing yes. that polyunsaturated fats break normal human metabolism. Yeah. Um, I mentioned this one earlier, and I've talked about this one in previous podcasts. This is fascinating. This is monogenic insulin resistance with premature atherosclerosis in a condition called familial partial lipodystrophy Dunnigan type. The reason this is valuable, and I found this paper through Peter's blog, no surprise, hat tip to Peter, you're good. It's good to have you here so that I can actually hat tip you in person, is that there, there is a mutation. I think Peter got this, maybe gotten this from someone else, so we have to give credit where credit's due. I, I can't picture where I got that from. But, but basically there's one gene here. This is one gene, the LMNA, codon 482, that creates something called familial partial lipodystrophy. And what's going on here is you cannot store fat yeah. in a subcutaneous manner. And what happens is that if you can't store fat there, um, you get a lot of visceral adipose tissue, I believe. These people are very lean peripherally and they get very big fat cells because they can't store fat other places. They can't get subcutaneous fat. So they have a six pack, but they get premature atherosclerosis because they have one gene which prevents them from storing fat. They get huge hypertrophic rather than hyperplastic adipocytes. Yeah. And what do those hypertrophic adipocytes do? They spew out free fatty acids. Yeah. So you guys can read about this on hyperlipid or I've talked about it previously. Yeah. This paper really illustrates that increased free fatty acids coming from overly distended adipocytes, which are also inflammatory and have you know, monocyte intrusion, um, leads to insulin resistance, leads to pathological metabolic dysfunction, and that leads to premature atherosclerosis. How fascinating is that? That yeah. we don't want this, but you can do this without being somebody that has this genetic problem, but it's a real cool genetic model for atherosclerosis based yeah. on one gene, one gene, but you don't want your free fatty acids to be high and you do not want your adipocytes to be too big. Yes. Now, this is actually one of the coolest things I've seen. We could do a whole, we'll probably have to do so much more on this, you guys. And I'll let you comment. I've gone through three papers, Peter, I apologize. I'll let you comment in a moment. This is the role of physiological levels of 4-HNE, 4-hydroxynonanol on adipocyte biology implications for obesity and metabolic syndrome. They use these type of adipocytes, 3T3L1, and our studies demonstrate that acute and repeated exposure of adipocytes with physiological low concentrations of HNE, 4-HNE, which is a byproduct of linoleic acid metabolism, is sufficient to promote oxidative stress, impaired adipogenesis, alter the expression of adipokines like adiponectin or PPAR gamma agonists, which lead to adipocyte hyperplasia, and increase lipolytic gene expression and increase free fatty acid release. Basically, they're saying here, a byproduct of linoleic acid metabolism for HNE is the worst thing in the world for humans. <laughs> it's making very big fat cells, which are at the root of metabolic dysfunction. And we saw that with the familial partial lipodystrophy, the Dunnigan lipodystrophy study that I just showed. But how do you get high levels of 4-HNE? Hat tip to Tucker Goodrich, who I'm going to have on the podcast. You eat lots of linoleic acid. I've talked about this in the past. So I think those three studies are really cool. Again, we're just scratching the surface here, you guys. But I'd love to get your thoughts on those, Peter. Anything else you want to add to that sort of discussion? I think that the 4-HNE is 
very, very complicated. And it, again, it is generating engineering resistance, which you could argue are good or bad. Right. And at the most basic level, um, I put a poster to up that from papers that showed that there were potential benefits for HNE, that they promoted uncoupling, which drops the membrane voltage, which drops reactive oxygen species production, which you could argue is good. And for HNE also, I don't, didn't pick up the mechanism, but also generates uh, reactive oxygen species in its own right, which resist insulin. So you can stay slim with 4-HNE, but goodness knows what other things it does during that process of making your adipocytes insulin resistant, which it undoubtedly does, and it probably makes the whole of the rest of insulin resistant as well. And insulin resistance as a physiological process, I have absolutely no problem with. Insulin resistance as a product of essentially a metabolic poison um, is not quite so straightforward and I certainly wouldn't use it as a slimming aid so theoretically you could do so yeah you'd be thin and massive atherosclerosis perhaps depends like where it's going to make the ROSs doesn't it um, but it's not in a controlled way as a signaling molecule that the electron transport would like to do it's more of a oh my god something's gone wrong what the hell can we try and do with what's gone wrong um that's not normal signaling in any way, shape, or form. These are yeah. all conserved mechanisms of our evolutionary biology that get employed as defense mechanisms, as we showed in that one paper, but sometimes to defend us from a, an acute stressor, we result, the result is a long-term chronic disease called atherosclerosis or Alzheimer's disease or age-related macular degeneration. So your body is just trying to get you to survive to next week so that you can reproduce. That's all it really cares about. Yeah, absolutely, yes, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But what we care about- these things, If you want to age gracefully, <laughs> that might be yes. quite a good idea. We would, we would prefer to be able to reproduce and then spend time with our kids playing. And, but the body is really good at just getting you to reproduce. And if you, if, if, if you being able to reproduce comes at the cost of you having a heart attack when you're 45, your body is okay with that. Yeah, if you finish, yep, you, yeah. you've done yeah. what you need to do, yes. But what we are interested in is how to age gracefully, as Peter said, and you know that's what it's about. And how do you age gracefully? You avoid chronic disease, and then you get to have reproductive life, and then play with your kids and your grandkids. <laughs> and that's what that's what Western medicine misses. Or that's so that's just because you remain thin with polyunsaturated fatty acids until the whole thing goes wildly off the rails doesn't isn't a good thing. No, no, no. And again, you don't always invariably remain thin anyway. No, you don't. What else don't. is going on? You don't. But I want to show this paper too. I've, I've talked about this one in the past. Lowering dietary linoleic acid reduces bioactive oxidized linoleic acid metabolites in humans. It's just a paper connecting the fact that if you decrease you know, low linoleic acid, you will have less 4-HNE, less 9 and 13 HODE. And these are complex. I'll do a whole separate podcast, guys, on this with Tucker Goodrich. Yeah, so and you don't want 13 hold, that's for sure. You don't want these things. They're, they're probably not good for humans. Um, 
I know we've got a short amount of time, Peter. Um, we're going to have to do another podcast. We've got a little bit more time. Where do you want to go next as we start to kind of wrap this up for people? I've got all the papers you've sent me. I've got the Spanish study looking at um, the postprandial modulation of beta cell function with different dietary fats. That one talks about monounsaturated fats. We could talk about that one. Where do you want to go next? I think that in, as a, a generic observation is that there is a phobia amongst the medical profession about elevated fatty acids and elevated triglycerides. And that's understandable because they go up in type 2 diabetes, they go up with inappropriate lipolysis. And, but I feel very strongly that there is a world of difference between an elevated chylomicron count, which is derived from a meal where the linoleic acid composition of that meal was under 1% of the calories or of the fat composition. So you have a, a set of triglycerides, a set of chylomicrons postprandially, which are essentially linoleic acid free compared to, um, say, in the Spanish study, where they fed um, uh, high polyunsaturated fatty acids. And admittedly, the triglyceride levels dropped quicker, but they need to because they're full of oxidizable lipid. Um, and obviously, they don't fall by evaporating. They fall by going into your adipocytes. Um, and I think there is a world of difference between elevated either free fatty acids or triglycerides, depending on the composition of those free fatty acids and triglycerides. So particularly, it was very obvious in the Spanish study that the, the, the chylomicron count in the aftermath of uh, butter with a very small carbohydrate load, the chylomicron, account, uh, um, chylomicron uh, count was way, way higher um, in the butter-fed uh, people. Uh, than it was in the polyunsaturated fatty acid-fed people. Um, yeah, I think we're there with triglycerides, higher for longer, yeah. So, um, but, and again, this is a bad thing in inverted commas, um, whereas if you don't fill those chylomicrons with unstable fats, does it matter that they're elevated for any period of time? And I would argue that it doesn't matter. Um, there's a fascinating literature on um, acute pancreatitis where you can simply dial the damage markers to the pancreas by increasing the fatty acid, the polyunsaturated fatty acid composition of the uh, um, of the diet um, or of the exposure of the isolated pancreatic cells, however you care to do it. Um, so I feel that there are the world is full of misconceptions where uh, this is bad in metabolic syndrome. And it's not so straightforward to say that it's going to be bad in, on an evolutionary basis. I don't worry about what my chylomicron count is going to be like when I've eaten uh, 150 grams of beef dripping because that beef dripping has got less than 1% polyunsaturated fatty acids in it. So it's not going to make 4-HNE and it's not going to make the other reactive oxygen species that are going to screw up my pancreas and give me acute pancreatic fulminating pancreatitis uh, in the aftermath of a high-fat meal. So... Um, I think there is a lot of thinking has to go on around 
how you interpret a given finding. Yeah. So I just try and keep thinking. <laughs> well, I've said this recently too. Context is everything. Mainstream Western medicine gets very worried about elevated LDL. Yeah. And they completely miss the context that LDL has valuable roles in the human body as an immune signaling molecule. And then an elevated quote LDL in the setting of metabolic health without yeah. tons of linoleic acid floating around your body uh, is probably not a bad thing. Uh, no. It might even be a good thing. And this yeah. is the work of Dave Feldman, who I have yeah. on the podcast. They're all, we're all people looking at these things, which is really good. I mean, yeah. we all come at these things with a, a, a different perspective. Um, and though I'm a complete skeptic on cholesterol and LDL in terms of pathology, um, it's nice to have other people working at showing this. <laughs> oh, me too. I need to say as a religious statement, I don't believe LDL is going to kill me. Um, it's quite nice to have somebody go and actually produce an evidence base for that. Yeah, we try. Because I come at this with my biases. Yeah, we have a, but we have to have a bias. So I'll just show the Spanish study a little bit more detail here. It's a little bit of a complex thing to look at the graphics, you guys. But basically, they gave people a control meal of, I believe, 40 grams of carbohydrate in the- yeah, a small snack. Yeah. yeah. And then they gave them the same 40 grams of carbohydrate with fat. And the fat was up to 800 calories. And they gave the fat as butter, saturated fat, um, olive oil as monounsaturated fat. Yeah. And then um, the, what are, what's, what's this one and this one? They have a vegetable oil. High polyunsaturated sunflower oil, I think. And then um, the VEFO. So the was the last one, yeah. What is it? It's even higher in polyunsaturates than so, the- Okay, oral. and you can see here, very interestingly, we can look at the postprandial insulin levels. You know, again, it's, we don't really care about what your postprandial insulin level is right now. But what Peter was illustrating, we, I think the most interesting graphs are the triglyceride, the postprandial triglyceride graphs, and the postprandial free fatty acid graphs. I love the free fatty acids, yep. Yeah. And so when you were talking about chylomicrons, you're essentially talking about triglycerides here in, in chylomicrons. And, you know, we are, these triglycerides are transiting in chylomicrons. Chylomicrons are made in, this, in the intestines where triglycerides get taken up and then transited throughout the body. What you see here is that the triglycerides stay higher in the butter group for longer, which is not surprising when you think about this whole model we've been talking about today. If you eat saturated fat with your mixed meal, you expect your body to be appropriately insulin resistant, especially the adipocytes. And that means they're, they're refusing the input. Now, if you look at now, one of the things I've been talking about recently is monounsaturated fat. And I think Peter would agree with me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that guzzling a whole bunch of olive oil or avocado oil is not a good thing. We should not be guzzling monounsaturated fats either. Um, because you can see here that even in monounsaturated fats, the more double bonds you introduce in the molecule, the less of that satiety signal, quote unquote, you're going to get at your fat cells or your periphery when you eat this meal. So the triglycerides stay higher in the saturated fat group because the chylomicrons are persisting in the, in the circulation because they're not going into your fat cells. Yes, that's why they're there. That's why they're there. They're not going into your fat cells, but they're dropping more quickly in all of the polyunsaturated groups because they're going into the adipocytes because the adipocytes are inappropriately insulin sensitive. CD36 is on the membrane. They're going in there. And you can see this with the free fatty acids. You can see that the fatty acids are staying the highest in your blood in the saturated fat meal because your body is appropriately insulin refusing. And in the other meals with more polyunsaturates, the free fatty acids are going out of your bloodstream faster. They don't just evaporate. 
they go into your cells. Absolutely, yes. Which is what you don't want. So this is, again, this is a study in humans showing that based on the amount of unsaturations in the molecule, you are storing more fat more quickly. Is that an accurate statement to make, Peter? That's the way I viewed it. It's not the way that the researchers viewed it. (laughs) (laughs) But you you, you read the read the results section and work from there. There's no, you don't have to listen to what the, uh, the authors of the paper say. Yeah, yeah. So that's super interesting. And I think that's just fascinating stuff. It was a good paper, that. I yeah, think that... it was Dr. Davis, actually, the, um, the cardiology chap who, uh, at the time he posted that, he was a major, major saturophobe. I've no idea what his opinion is nowadays. <laughs> but, but, but in those days, that, that was kind of, well, look how bad saturates are. Okay. Uh, and we can interpret it completely differently. Um, yes, absolutely. So we've talked about so much, Peter. I want to just ask you one more question. We'll have to get you back on for another podcast. I know you've got uh, to run. I'll probably stick around on this podcast and, and just wrap it all up for people. But That'd be great. in your blog, you also kind of hint at this notion that maybe plant molecules are not so good for us and plant molecules could be damaging DNA for humans. Oh, which exactly. Yeah. Which is something that I think is fascinating. You know, I wrote this book, The Carnivore Code. I don't eat a lot of plant polyphenols, but I just would love to hear your thoughts on that. This is again a little bit off the topic, um, but tell me your thoughts on the two things that I want to. I have questions about, and then we'll let you go. Um, is it good for humans to take lots of antioxidants, <laughs> knowing what we know about this? And do you think there's evidence that plant molecules could be damaging human DNA? And these are essentially in some ways, similar questions, because we're talking about the potential for polyphenolic molecules in plants to yeah. act in a bad way as with, with humans. I think the, the, uh, the liver does the best it can to get rid of antioxidants as, as promptly as it can do. Um, so Quote, can, antioxidants. Yeah. Which are actually pro-oxidants. When you look at when you look at how important the oxygen signaling system is within the body, then there's no role for blanket, uncontrolled flooding the system with antioxidants. Um, no, I've got no time for that at all. Um, the, the, I can't remember, the, 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 there's a whole thread on fruit and vegetables on the blog, and it, I think it almost started with that paper where they gave green tea extract Right. And, and increased in damage to DNA and, and, um, uh, and protein adducts. And, and, uh, to me, that was nice. I, I, I view things, I mean, slightly differently nowadays. Uh, and I can't look at um, uh, a plant food without thinking of it in terms of um, defense for the plant. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the classic one, would be um, plums, plums, okay? Um, you go to the tree, you eat a plum, um, you're not very careful how you eat it if you're, uh, if you're an animal, and you swallow the pip. And you can apply that to virtually all fruit. You, the, the theory is that you swallow the pip and you poo it out somewhere else, and that's you being transport for the, for the plant. But the plant doesn't want you to kill the seed. Exactly. So anything, it's got the lure, the fructose, to get you to eat the seed, but it deliberately wants you to not digest the seed. So the plant should be packaging uh, a gut-damaging chemical with the treat. Yeah, 
Um, and you can think of that as wheat, and wheat germagglutinin is fantastic at damaging your gut, so you're going to throw out wheat seeds if you eat them raw. Not a good um, thing. And you think about you eat the plum. Well, okay, what are prunes marketed for? Well, they're marketed for treating constipation. And if you want to have a clear out as a plum tree to get your seed out of the back end of a mammal, then doing some sort of irritant or damage to the gut is a jolly good way of doing it. And if you're lucky, you can tolerate that without any problems. If you aren't lucky, you end up with uh, localized gut damage. And if you're really, really unlucky, you end up with systemic damage, um, depending on how far the toxins get. Um, and obviously, if it's wheat germaglutinin, then people are going to pull it out of your brain. Um, if you've got uh, immune-mediated um, cerebellar ataxia, um, and again, that was a whole series of posts where the neurologists were arguing about whether autoimmune or idiopathic cerebellar ataxia could be wheat germaglutinin related. And Sheffield University said yes, and Nottingham University said no, they're 40 miles apart, um, and they clearly hate each other. Um, but one of the guys, the, 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 the Greek guy in Sheffield, um, gets anybody with cerebellar ataxia to go on to gluten-free diet if they will. Nottingham, they say there's your wheelchair get it. <laughs> so. Why would you not? I mean, it's just, I don't understand Western medicine. Why would you not put people like that on a gluten-free diet? It Why would you not? Very it, again, it's inertia, isn't yes. it? It's inertia and it's a lack of, um, a lack of, um, oh, it's hubris. Yeah. Yes. Hubris, yeah. So these, these are very, very pervasive problems. And to get through the medicine course, or the veterinary course, you have to say the right answer to every question you're asked. <laughs> you out. Um, so it's, uh, no, I can see that plants, it, it's a trade-off. And clearly some people get on perfectly well, but then clearly some people have chronic health problems who, and they don't attribute it to the damage being done by the healthy plants that they're eating. Well, there you go. Um, it's hard to it's hard to pick up when something is ubiquitous that it's actually causing a specific problem. When the problem is fairly ubiquitous but not specific, it's not like you eat one plum and you're going to get autoimmune disease. Well, maybe you are, maybe you're not. But no, but for some people, and this is why I, I'm so fascinated by a carnivore diet. For some people, the elimination of the majority of plant foods results in massive improvements in autoimmune disease, yeah. and and this is just an an undeniable observation at this point in our medical history. And I think that it's going to change the medical world because as more and more people realize this and as it gets a broader audience with your work and with my work and other people in the space yeah. who are doing great work, we're saying, hey, if you have autoimmune disease, why don't you try eliminating plants? Because animal fat is good for you. Saturated yeah. fat is not bad for you. Yeah. You don't need seed oils and you eat nose to tail, get your organs in. And I'm sure you guys over in the UK eat liver and organ meats. And liver and lamb's hearts are the two organs that I can easily get hold of. And I, I like both of them. So I'm lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm, the liver tastes of sugar. I can taste the sugar in I know because it has glycogen in it. Yeah, yeah. And we're developing a supplement called Heart of the Warrior, which has liver and heart. I think if people were going to eat two organs, you'd want to get liver and heart, but there's so many good nutrients in the liver, in the other, in all the organs. So you just want to get organs and meat. And then, you know, you can include some mild carbohydrates occasionally if you choose to. That's going to solve so much human disease. It would change the world. Now, yeah, I, I, got, I got caught that way. Can't do, I can't, I'm unwilling to stop 
being mostly carnivore because I, I picked up odd health benefits that I'm unwilling to trade in. <laughs> right? You're unwilling to, you like, you like hanging out with your family and, and being it's able to do, difficult. you know, and climb. It's I know you're antisocial, going out for a meal. I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't mind going for a meal and having a steak and sending all the salad and the chips back. That, that doesn't worry me. But, but in some, you go around to people's house for a meal, that's not easy. Well, see, everybody knows that I'm, that I'm crazy and that, I, that I'm, you know, that, I, that that's the way I eat because that's the, that's the good part of what I've done is that, that now most people that know me in the space know that I'm not going to eat anything but the meat or organs if I go to their house. Um, so it makes it a little easier socially, but maybe, maybe I have less friends because of it, but that's okay. I'm willing to do it. It's, it's a valuable trade because, you know, human health is, is what we're all about. I want to be able to, to hang out with my friends and, and do cool things in my life. And we're not willing to make trades with chronic disease. And so that's very interesting that you feel that way. So thank you so much for coming on today. We could talk for another three hours. I'd love to have you back on in the future. It's been um, a good chat. I really appreciate your work. I'm so grateful for all of it. I've learned so much from your blogs. I'm going to stick around after this podcast, uh, you guys, and go through a few more papers just to kind of wrap it all up. Peter has to go. But Peter, where can people find your work? We talked about hyperlipid. How can people support the awesome stuff you're doing? Uh, no, it, it doesn't work that way, Paul. It, it doesn't work that way. I, I, have no, I have no choice about this. I don't have a blog for a reason. I have a blog because I, I started it just to write down ideas because I lose stuff on my hard drive. and Now I lose stuff in the blog. Um, but I, I have a set of ideas. I have a piece of logical, um, logical thought that appears to have very major explanatory power. I don't do it for any other reason. I can be out. We're, we're lucky we've got acre and a half of ground. I do a lot of groundwork. <laughs> but I think, I think while I'm doing it, um, I don't need to sleep very much. I wake up at five in the morning. Stuff goes around in my head. And that's, that's just how life is. I, I have no choice about this. This is not something I ever decided to do. And if people ask me, could you do this, 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 or this? Probably not, because I, I, I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, I'll write a review of this, 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 or this. It's, oh, God, that's interesting. Uh, how does that work? And it goes from there. And that's just how the, the, the blog fell out. Um, and uh, as you realize that loads of the links in the blog are going down because they're very old links. Uh, and I, I just knew nothing about blogging. I still know nothing about blogging now. Um, but I just write down stuff that I think is correct. And occasionally you, you screw up. Um, you know, over the, I've been blogging for, what, 18 years now? <laughs> you can screw up occasionally. Um, and I do occasionally, but I think the basic concepts that I've got are probably correct. Yeah. I think that they're very compelling and I've found your work very valuable. So thank you for doing it. If people want to read your blog, it's hyperlipid. Uh, you will all be enraptured. It's very complex, so take it slowly. Um, Proton's thread is primarily what we've been talking about today, but there are many other blog posts that are super fascinating. Uh, a huge hat tip to you, my friend, for all this work. I so appreciate it. And, and if you're willing, I'd love to have you back on the podcast soon. I'm sure the audience would, would love that as well, so we can get more into this. We didn't get to talk about metformin. I knew we were only going to get to like a fourth of what I hoped for, but, but I hope that we gave people a, a baseline and some sort of an understanding. Again, if this is complex, stick around. I'm going to explain more of it. 
momentarily as Peter has to go. Listen to the podcast with Brad Marshall. Listen to the podcast I did with Ben Bickman. Listen to the podcast I did with Tommy Wood. I always develop these series on the blogs, you guys, where the complex stuff takes a lot of podcasts to explain, but I think this is very valuable because what we're really getting at here is how do we reverse chronic disease? And are the cardiologists right or are we right? Because this is a huge problem. So Peter, the last question I always ask people is, what is the most radical thing that you have done recently? Oh, God. I don't know whether to admit this or not. <laughs> I think you should. I took up running. Amazing. No, you don't realize. I have always loathed running. Uh -huh. I've been completely anti-running nonstop all of my life. <laughs> and I've taken up running. I'm really enjoying it. You're enjoying it. That's amazing. Absolutely. And this is um, math training. And this is... Fully, fully oxidative, fat only, and it's really enjoyable. And the number of people I've told, walk, don't run, like they used to tell me at school. <laughs> and I'm wrong. <laughs> I really enjoy it. And it has had odd, again, knock-on benefits that I really have enjoyed. And that, that that's... The strangest thing that I've ever done is to take up running at 64. Um, <laughs> and it's good. It's good. Well, Usually, unless I want to run. Yes, um, I can now run quite fast. That's amazing. I love it. I love it. Maybe at some point we'll get to go for a run together. I'm uh, a retired runner. Uh, I, not many people know this about me, but I used to run ultra marathons. And, and I really enjoyed being in the wilderness for long amounts of time. The longest race I ever did was a 50 mile race outside of, um, in Colorado, a very high elevation. It actually ended up yeah. being 53 because I went off the trail. So, but uh, running 50 plus miles, it does strange things to your brain. It's a very interesting place to go. I wouldn't recommend it to most people and I don't do it anymore. But, but running is a very fundamentally human activity. We can certainly do too much of it. It's very powerful activity. It's very powerful medicine, but there's a whole interesting idea around persistence hunting and that's for another podcast. But thank you so much for coming on my friend and I look forward to our conversations. Okay, I shall go and feed the children. <laughs> All the best, thanks for having me. That's been Peter, lovely. Thank you so much. Take care, cheers. All right, you guys, the podcast rolls on, as has been the case in the last few podcasts. I just haven't had enough time to get to everything I wanted to get to, and I realized I can just hang out for a little bit. You guys are stuck with me for 10 or 15 more minutes, and I'll sort of summarize and, and share some papers that we didn't get to in the podcast. Again, Peter's going to have to come on again. That was amazing. I so appreciate his work. So at the end, when I asked him about the potential for plant molecules to damage DNA, he referred to this paper which is in my book, which I've talked about multiple times, green tea extract paper. The title isn't very revealing, but the su summary of the results is the overall effect of the 10 week period without dietary fruits and vegetables was a decrease in the oxidative damage to DNA, blood proteins and plasma lipids concomitantly with marked changes in antioxidant defense. There is a whole body of literature, which I discuss in my book, The Carnivore Code, surrounding these ideas. The idea is that the compounds in fruit and vegetables are not necessarily good for humans. There's a lot of conflicting data there. And in that quote, green tea study, the removal of these compounds 
resulted in improvements in oxidative stress markers. And if you are interested in that, check out my book, The Carnivore Code. Check out the other podcasts I've done on this multiple times in the past showing that the compounds in plants are not good for you. You don't need them to be optimally healthy. That was an aside. I just wanted to get Peter's perspective on it since it was so cool in the podcast. I want to go back and kind of wrap up the stuff with the electron transport chain. We showed that in the beginning. We are talking about endosymbiosis. We are talking about mitochondria, which are primordial bacteria that a, that an organism engulfed uh, billions and billions of years ago that run us every day. Within these mitochondria, there's an electron transport chain that is conserved all the way back to C. elegans and even beyond that. Yeast have an electron transport chain. Single-celled organisms um, that have mitochondria can have, have electron transport chains. What we're talking about is this F to N ratio, the ratio of FADH2 to NADH based on what substrate we run our biology on, and the fact that an evolutionarily inconsistent consumption of linoleic acid could be driving the chronic disease epidemic in our world today. You guys heard a couple of weeks ago when I had Chris Kenobi on, shout out to Chris, that there is an epidemic of chronic disease. We cannot ignore the epidemic of chronic disease. It is in our face. Something is causing it. And a whole group of people wanna say that it's animal fat. That's absurd. <laughs> evolutionarily, anthropologically, that's an absurd, just that's an absurd assertion. It's a hypothesis, which we can test, but there are many people, there's tons of anthropology, it's not animal fat. Another group of people want to say you're just because you're overeating calories that are chronic disease, just because everybody's overeating too many calories. That to me is similarly absurd and myopic. There are many people who fast, who have chronic disease, who are having a caloric deficit, who don't see improvements in their autoimmunity or other, other issues or atherosclerosis. You can get vegans with atherosclerosis and they're, they're caloric, they have a caloric deficit. It's metabolic dysfunction that is causing chronic disease. And what is causing metabolic dysfunction? It's not carbohydrates. I argued that with Ben Beekman in a very familiar uh, podcast, very friendly podcast with him. Yes, excess high fructose corn syrup, not a good thing. You don't want to pour fructose into your body, but Moderate amounts of fructose and fruit seasonally, honey or carbohydrates in the form of squash or other carbohydrates, these are not causing metabolic dysfunction. They didn't with our ancestors. I talked about that with Chris Kenobi. They don't with indigenous cultures. And as we talked about with Chris Kenobi, I think that the very real possibility is that evolutionarily inconsistent things in our diet, and what is the most evolutionarily inconsistent thing that we are doing in 2020 and for the last 100 years, it is massive amounts of the very unstable polyunsaturated fatty acid, linoleic acid, and other polyunsaturated fats. And Peter's work really ties it together to the level of mitochondria and says, oh, when you do this, your mitochondria get all messed up, your cells remain improperly sensitive to insulin, allowing ingress of calories in the form of glucose and free fatty acids, your adipocytes expand and you get metabolic dysfunction. I talked about this with Ben Bickman, what an incredible theory. The solution is simple at a high level. If you get nothing else from this podcast, eat animal meat and organs, eat fat. If you need the organs, check us out at hardensoil.co. If you're getting fresh organs, amazing, electronic high five. Avoid vegetable oils, avoid high linoleic acid containing animals like chicken and pork fat, like the plague, and you will thrive. You'll thrive. Send me an email, drpaul, drpaul at hardensoil.co.co if you have questions and I'll help you with that as well. I wanna share a few more uh, studies and then I'll wrap this one up. This is a very fascinating study. Dietary fat composition alters membrane phospholipid composition 
insulin binding and glucose metabolism in adipocytes from control and diabetic animals. It's all there in the title. The type of dietary fat you eat, polyunsaturated versus saturated, changes the phospholipids in your cell membranes. That changes insulin binding and glucose metabolism. And the summary is all there. You can see here, the high polyunsaturated to saturated fat diet was associated with increased insulin binding. That's what we talked about. You don't want that. You don't want that. You want your cells to be able to signal to the rest of the body when they're full. You want your cells to be able to signal, hey, don't give me any more nutrients. The polyunsaturated fats in our diet are breaking that cellular switch, that cellular signal that says, hey, you're done, and allowing excess nutrients in, which causes all sorts of problems. That's, I think, the root of what we are talking about today. I mentioned insulin-sensitive obesity. Here's a paper about it. And what makes someone insulin sensitive versus insulin resistant when they are obese? Insulin sensitive IS compared with IR obese individuals have significantly lower visceral fat area. We didn't talk much about visceral fat today, but um, visceral fat is probably a marker for hyperinsulinemia and metabolic dysfunction. And they have a, they have a lower number of macrophages in the omental adipose tissue, and they have a lower mean omental adipocyte size. If you want to be insulin sensitive, which if you want to be metabolically healthy, you want your adipocytes small. How do you get small adipocytes? You tell those adipocytes to shut off, to stop growing by giving them saturated fat, which is the signal to stop growing. How do you get big adipocytes? You get lots of linoleic acid. You get lots of 4-HNE. Again, I'm going to have Tucker on the podcast soon. And your adipocytes will expand. They will get hypertrophic versus hyperplastic. Hyperplastic is when you have lots of small adipocytes. Hypertrophic is when you have big adipocytes which spew out free fatty acids. That is the root of the problem. The familial partial hypolithrodystrophy, Dunnigan lipodystrophy, excess free fatty acids is the root of this all. So hopefully that makes sense to you guys. Email me if you have questions, Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul, hardensoil.co. Check us out at Heart and Soil. If you need nose to tail nutrition in your life, just get nose to tail nutrition, fear linoleic acid, do not do that. Do not eat as if you are starving when you are in the midst of abundance, when you can get animal foods. Animal foods are the signal to our bodies that we have abundance, they can be lean, they can be healthy. You'll get to play with your kids and your grandkids and you'll avoid atherosclerosis. So hopefully that all makes sense. It's an incredible podcast. Thanks again to Peter for coming on, love you all. This is the this is this podcast after the podcast. You can listen after sort of the podcast, after the podcast, after the podcast for what's going on with me. Stay radical, you guys. What's the most radical thing I've done? Let me think about it. I always do this when I do the little podcast outros. Um, I recently got back from Georgia when I was hanging out at White Oak Pastures. Love those guys. Got to see regenerative farming in action. Got to take pictures for the cookbook. And yesterday I went out with a friend on Lake Austin on paddle boards. Got to see the sunset. It was amazing. <laughs> Beautiful, brilliant life brought to you by Animal Foods Nose to Tail. Love you all. Stay radical. Thank you for being a part of the remembering. This is the remembering. Welcome to the remembering. Remember who we are meant to be as humans. Remember how we are meant to eat and live. Be in nature. Spend time with people you care about. Eat nose to tail. That's it, you guys. Take care. All right, you guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast with Peter Dobromilski. You can find him at Hyperlipid Blog. It will blow your mind. There's some really cool stuff. I like the way he's thinking outside the box, and I love having folks like this on. It's a super technical podcast, but I hope that you enjoyed it. 
So depending when you're listening to this, the episode with Joe Rogan may or may not have released. My greatest hope is that this episode opens a lot of people's eyes, challenges a lot of the status quo, and brings people to better health. That's what we're about. Um, we got a short time on the earth, and I'm incredibly grateful to be able to do meaningful things while I am on it. So you're all a part of this. You're all a part of the tribe. You can always sign up for the newsletter at heartandsoil.co, and you'll hear from me at least every week in terms of what's going on, our products we got coming out, all the exciting things. Right now, in the midst of super success uh, with Heart and Soil, we're trying super hard to keep all of our products in stock. Certainly with Rogan, I anticipate they will get sold out, at least some of them. And we're going to try and get them back as soon as possible. On the website, you will see there's a pre-order option if you want to get it as soon as we get it. There's a notify me when available option as well. So consider those. Thank you for your support of us. We are doing everything we can to grow this company fast because we know that it is doing good work in the world, changing lives positively. And the tricky part is that it's made from real food. So we can't always get the best grass-fed, grass-finished animals in the world um, at the drop of a hat. Again, we're growing, we're forecasting. It will be something that we're trying to fix in the future, but bear with us now. Thank you for spreading the word regarding all of this, and um, we appreciate you all in that respect. Please check out my other sponsors, Blueblocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com, whiteoakpastures.com, belcampo.com. All of those use the code CarnivoreMD for various sundry magical discounts, hardandsoil.co, and nutrisense.io for SCGM. I'm wearing one. I love it. Super interesting to see how my blood sugar responds to all sorts of things. And my dad wore one. I'm excited to share his results soon. He's actually wearing multiple more because he really liked it. And it was such a cool beginning of behavioral change for him. This is really what I think is so interesting is how we spark behavioral change in humans. And I think that feedback, whether it's in the form of organ meats, giving them an immediate good feeling, an immediate burst of energy, an immediate sense that there is something good going on in their body can be powerful, but so can CGM, so can real-time feedback. So check out that at Nutrisense.io. All right, you guys, we're crushing it. We're loving it here in Texas, getting in the sun, going to Barton Springs, swimming in the springs. If you're in Austin, look for me at Barton Springs. I'm there all the time now. And sometimes I'm at the Whole Foods in downtown Austin. I've met a couple people there. Anyway, hope you guys like the podcast today. Let me know what you think. I'll see you soon. You are part of the remembering. Stay radical because you are.